discern the Lord's will in our day-to-day life, which leads me to the big idea, excuse me, of this sermon, which is not up there right now. So once it goes up there, but this is the big idea. We can abide in our circumstances because God calls us to abide with him. Now, before we go any further, I think it's appropriate that we define three terms that I'm going to be using a lot throughout this sermon. And I'll show you where I'm getting those terms. They might be translated a little different in your translation, but I use the only translation that's appropriate, which is the English Standard Version. No, I'm kidding. You can use whatever you want. But the, uh, the first word is the word assignments. And we see that in verse 17. Sorry, it's not going to be on the screen. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all churches. So these assignments are the circumstances of your lives. They are the responsibilities of your life to your family, to your work, to your neighbors, and to your church and other things like that. So those are the assignments, the relationships that God has given us to live in. The second word that I want you to see is the word opportunity. And I see this word in verse 21, which says, Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if, God, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. An opportunity, we're going to see, is a lawful and properly available path where we might change the circumstances that we are in. The time may come when God calls you to do something different, as long as it's lawfully and properly available. The third word is the word calling or called. And we see this throughout the whole passage. It's almost in every verse. Sometimes we think of calling, I've heard this preached too many times wrong, sometimes we think of calling as a sense of vocation, our job, what we're doing for a living. But the word calling, as Paul always uses it, never to talk about your job, He's talking about the effectual calling that God has placed upon your life. This is when he invited you for the first time ever to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ through faith alone. And then the millionth time after that, he's called you to trust him in your circumstances. It's the effectual calling of God. The calling to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Specifically, the definition that we're going to go towards is in verse 24 which is, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. So there's our definitions. Those are are the words we're going to be using a lot, and we're going to walk through this in three steps. God's calling transcends your horizontal assignments. God's calling transcends your vertical assignments. And God's calling teaches us to abide with God. God. The first two are going to be a little bit more uh, word-centric. The last one's going to be how do you apply that to our lives. So God's calling transcends all of our horizontal, horizontal sorry, assignments. Verse 17 says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, into which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. That includes our church. All the churches. Up to this point, Paul has been talking about remaining in the situations that we find ourselves in our marriage, in our singleness. So are you single? Are you married? Paul says when you're called, if whatever one you're in, it is good for you to remain in that situation if you can. And then Paul expands that principle to show us that it's a general principle, not just to the married and the single, but to everyone, to all our lives. 
Now, if we read the word called there as it's translated, it almost sounds like what Paul is saying is we're called to these assignments. But that's not what Paul is saying. If you take the Greek and you translate it literally into English without making it readable, it would read something like, only to each as God assigned in the situation in which God has called each, thus let him walk. I'm thankful they switched those around and make it a little easier to read. But in other words, he's saying whatever assignment you have been given, the calling of God comes to you at a specific time in the middle of your assignment, in the middle of your family in the middle of your work, in the middle of your life situation, be either good or bad, the calling of God hits you right there. And suddenly, when that happened for the first time, you are no longer dead in your trespasses and sins. But by the grace of the Holy Spirit, God has opened your eyes to the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what should you do when that happens? Say you're a mechanic. Does that mean you should just quit being a mechanic and go become a pastor? Quit being a doctor, quit being a lawyer, a teacher, a, a barista, whatever. Does that mean when God calls you, you got to quit those things? Is that what he's saying? And Paul says, no. You don't have to leave what you are doing. You don't have to go somewhere else. You don't have to somehow quit your job and enter some type of vocational ministry. Now, there are some caveats to this. If you're in a, 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 a job that is constantly causing you to sin, maybe it's time to leave that job. But that's not what this is talking about. He's saying you don't have to quit everything and then become a pastor or a missionary or anything like that. Maybe you will, but that's not what he's saying. God has called you in the middle of your assignment that he has given you. And maybe you weren't aware of your, his presence in that, but he's saying I want you to stay there. That's why I called you where you are. And I want you to sit there and bloom there and be used there in that situation. Do you know every single one of you sitting before me can talk to people that I'll never have the privilege to talk to about the gospel? I can't come into your workplace and start sharing the gospel. I'm going to get arrested again. (laughs) But you can. You can form relationships. You can bloom where you are and be used by God. God wants you to stay there. Bloom where you're planted. He has put an assignment upon your life. And God is saying to walk in that. And so the first thing Paul talks about are these horizontal assignments or horizontal boundaries between people groups. He's talking about circumcision. We're going to talk about something different today. But, but he's saying you don't have to, the point of this is you don't have to become a part of a different people group to be a Christian. Specifically, he's addressing Jews and Gentiles. The Jews in the Old Covenant were separated physically from the other people by the sign of circumcision that God gave to them. And what Paul is saying in the new covenant under Christ, the division between people groups and national entities are no longer important. He says in verse 18, Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. So there were people in that day, who were preaching, in order for you to be a faithful Christian and follower of Jesus Christ, you had to be circumcised. But Paul's saying you're missing the point. You don't have to worry about those physical, national, ethnic boundaries that existed in the Old Testament, Old Covenant, because the call of Jesus Christ comes to all kinds of people, all kinds of cultures, speaking all kinds of languages. And the call of Jesus says this to every single person on the face of the planet. Come and follow me. 
Come and follow Jesus where you are. So in verse 19, Paul says, he's just explaining a little further, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. He's saying all those worries, those things, they don't matter. Your circumstances, that's not your main priority here. What matters is your conduct, keeping the commands of God, your heart. Now, this is actually a remarkable thing for Paul to say. If you were a Jew, one of the primary commandments of God was that you would be circumcised. And if your parents didn't do that, they failed you. And guess what? Now you have to do it as an adult. And that's no fun. So what does Paul mean? Don't worry about circumcision. Just worry about the commandments of God. Well, what he is talking about here, and it's important for us to understand this as modern believers, is in the situation that a believer, and a believer is someone who has been called by faith in Christ Jesus, has responded to that call with saving, justifying grace, uh, faith by grace alone, that we believers, us who believe in Christ, are called to live a life where we are living in a way that is defined to us by the word of God, that we're being governed by his word that he gave to us. We don't follow the law to be order, in order to be saved. right? We don't keep the law to be saved. We don't do good works to be saved. Rather, we are saved to keeping the law. We are saved to good works. We have the ability to do these now because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. So we don't follow the law in order to be saved. We are, we are saved and we are transformed to live gospel-centered, influenced lives. Live lives that are obedient to what God is calling us to do in the areas that we find ourselves. And what Paul is saying is that circumcision has nothing to do with that. Circumcision was an old covenant symbol. And it was a, it's like what all old covenant symbols were supposed to do. It was a sign. It was a foreshadow, a picture, and the purpose of the picture was to point you to someone greater, to something else, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ who comes and circumcises our hearts now, the Bible says. So as once the person came, the sign of circumcision gave way to the reality of something greater, something eternal, not something temporary. So as a church, we are not separated from the world. This is what Paul is saying. We're not to be separated from the world as a holy huddle from all the other bad people out there. Guess what? There's a lot of bad people in here too because we're all sinners. We don't need to go find an island and go be there, an exclusively Christian island, populate it, and hide off from the world. Although we often do that as a church, don't we? We hide between these four walls as an island and we say, wow, I wonder who's extending the kingdom of God out there. You should be. We should be flinging these doors wide open, engaging our culture, and it's going to get messy because we're a mess, including me. This is what we're called to do. The people group to whom uh, the people group We're not called to be, sorry, sealed off from the people groups of the world. Again, God's calling us, God's calling intersects. It cuts through whatever people group that we were born into. And that we don't have to go now join a whole new thing and isolate ourselves from the world. We are called to engage where we are. To believe the gospel, to follow the call of Jesus Christ, and to believe in him and to share that with others. Our separation from the world as God's holy church is not marked by ceremonial circumcision, 
but it's marked by holy obedience that God has graciously enabled us to have through the power of the Holy Spirit, of Christ's Spirit that lives inside of us. You already know when you live out the morals that you have because they're found in this book, the world hates you. The world will try to silence you. The world will come against you. So these are the horizontal assignments, the boundary groups, the people groups, uh, that we don't have to go do something else in order to be saved. We are saved by the blood of Christ. And now he's going to talk about the vertical boundaries in verse 20 to 23. And these are the different levels of responsibility and authority among human beings. And he's going to talk about the difference between free people and bond servants. So number two is God's calling transcends vertical assignments. Now look at verse 20. It says, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Again, condition here means calling. They're just making, they're, they're using similar language to get the point across, but it should read as uh, 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 each one should remain in the calling in which he was called. And here is the closest place where Paul uses the word calling to talk about what we mean when we talk about vocation, when we talk about responsibility, our relationships, the assignments that we have in life. But even here, that's not quite what Paul is saying. As one commentator writes, he says, Paul is taking the minor idea of these assignments that we have, and he's including them with the major blessing to the call to faith in Jesus Christ. So the idea of an effectual calling when we are drawn out of our sins to Jesus Christ that is included in the assignments in which we are ca- our calling finds us in. So in light of the heavenly glorious calling that we all have, that we have received, our earthly circumstances are in fact rather unimportant in comparison. Now I'm not being cold or hard on that, but it's ordering of importance in your brain that matters. Paul already made this case in marriage and singleness, saying, hey, these things are all temporary. Don't make them the main thing. Because there's no marriage in heaven, and your marriage relationship is actually pointing you to a relationship with God that will never end. So he's saying, don't make marriage or singleness, whatever that is, the main part of your life. And now he's doing that same argument again. Don't make your circumstances, your success, your goals, your aspirations the main thing in your life. And now Paul is, is talking and he's implying this to those, one of the hardest groups that you could find yourself, and those who are enslaved, those who are bondservants. But before we get to that, he says in verse 20, I want you to notice the word remain there. And this word, remain, is often translated in both the gospel letters of John and his, the gospel and his letters as the word abide. And it means to remain and endure a situation specifically with an idea of waiting for something greater. So Jesus used this when he's talking to his disciples. He says, remain here when I go pray. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, remain here. Abide here, and I'm going to go pray. And the idea is that, wait for me to come back. Don't go to sleep. The idea of abiding in a situation for a longer term while you're awaiting something bigger is probably most clearly seen in 1 John Chapter 2, 28 says, Now, little children, abide in him, live in him, remain in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. 
He's saying we are to live, abide, remain in Christ now, endure with Christ now. For when he appears with all his holy angels in the armies of heaven, we won't be frightened. We will have confidence when Jesus returns. Amen? Man, you guys are sleeping today. Here, Paul is telling us circumstances, situations, assignments in your life in which we are called to abide as we wait for the hope of glory to return. I always say this, we're selfish as North Americans. We, we say, oh Lord, come back after I get married. Oh Lord, after I, have, I see my grandkids. Oh Lord, oh Lord. Well, people are being murdered for their faith. Well, people starve to death across this globe who are saying, come Lord Jesus. I'm remaining, but come, Lord Jesus. And we're like, oh, God, I just want to see my grandkid take his first steps. Oh, God, I just want to go a little higher in the corporate ladder. Can you wait off on your coming? We're not concerned by it, but we should be. Paul uses both of these, this word uh, earlier in 7. He uses it in 8 when he's talking to widows to remain single. He uses it in 11 while he's talking to the unmarried, right, that they should remain as they are. Um, And in both of these cases, Paul is saying, remain in your assignments, whatever they may be, as you await the fulfillment of the hope of glory when Christ returns. And then Paul begins to draw this point of application to the idea of a bondservant. And notice that later in verse 21, Paul doesn't prohibit the slave, the enslaved, from leaving their situations. He's saying, if you get the opportunity, get out of there. But what Paul is saying is that that change from being bound to unbound is not, is not that necessary in light of what you are called to in Christ. If you get it, great. But if you, if you remain, that's also great because God can use you in that situation. The circumstances that you are in are relatively unimportant of the glory, in comparison to the glory of God and the calling that he has given you in Christ. Still, we might ask the question, well, why doesn't Paul seek to state clearly in his letter right now that the institution of slavery should be abolished? Why doesn't he say that? And that's a good question. It's not quite what Paul is talking about here, but we should address it since he brings up the topic. And I know it's kind of the elephant in the room, and it should be. Ancient slavery, the kind that Paul would be uh, uh, familiar with, that he would see practiced, is very different kind of slavery than the slavery of the United States and the North American slave trade. In the days of Paul, people would often sell themselves, choosing, selling themselves into slavery to pay off their debts. They were giving up their rights voluntarily. They were still giving up their rights. It's still horrible, but they were doing it voluntarily. Other times, though, slavery really provided an opportunity of upward social uh, mobility for the poor to have. What do I mean? Well, they're living in the slums. They're on the streets. How do I get off of that? I'm going to sell myself to a rich master, and I'm going to live in his house and serve him. A lot of times, the position of slave was an honorable position. Look at what this one commentator says, Richard Hayes. He says, To the slave of a powerful master could be an honorable station. Slaves were sometimes highly educated and trusted with administrative responsibilities. That's why slave of Christ, in verse 22, could be an honorable designation suggesting a position of some authority. Indeed, slave, especially of the right person, could be a good career choice for many. But I don't want to sugarcoat it. Because 
Even the slavery that Paul is talking about, like all things can be abused, and it often was. That's why many were saving up money to buy their freedom. And that's why Paul says, if you have the opportunity, take it. But the second principle that Paul is really aiming at, this is the most important one, is that he is arguing what the gospel does. And what the gospel does is it undercuts the very foundation which chattel-based, possession-based slavery rests. And that's ownership. Paul says in verse 22, For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. So when you're called in the Lord as a slave, as a bondservant, you don't belong to your master, but you belong to the Lord. So what is he saying? In this context, you can serve your master even if he's a hard taskmaster because you're not serving him. You're serving Jesus. How does that apply to your job? How does that apply to your life, your family, your kids? When you serve your master, you're not serving him but the Lord. This is that intersection of the calling that I was talking about. That it comes in the middle of your situation and you're called to live in light of what Christ has called you to. Likewise, Paul ends verse 22 by saying, Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. So he's saying, even if you are free when you're called, guess what? You're not actually free. You were bought with a price. All of us, in whatever assignments we find ourselves in, whatever conditions that we are currently in, we are slaves of Jesus Christ, and that transcends any worldly employment or assignment or situation that you might be facing. So Paul then, in verse 23, says, he gives us this principle. He says, all of this is because you were bought with a price, and do not become a bondservant of man. He's saying, don't put yourself under slavery. Don't put yourself under the obligation of anyone else because you were bought with a price. Remain in the condition that you are. And he's not just talking about physical uh, slavery here. He's talking, don't put yourself under the systems of this world that says you need to be successful. You need to do this and that in order for you to have a good and healthy life and a fulfilled life. And you just keep chasing this wheel of spin of success or people pleasing or whatever it might be. He says, don't put yourself under any bondage because you are a slave of Christ. You are bought with a high price, the blood of Jesus Christ. Don't put yourself under the control of anyone else. Let yourself be controlled by Christ and be content where you are in life and look for how God can bloom you there. You might be thinking, why drumheller, oh God? Why am I still here? Don't get me wrong, I love it here. It's gonna take a lot to get me out of here. But you might be thinking, why, oh God? Why drumheller? He has you here for a reason. You are to bloom here, to be used here. Don't be looking at where you can get off to or go. He might bring you there. But what your concern right now should be, how can I be used here, right now, in this church, in this community, in my home, with my family, in my job, wherever I find myself? Thirdly and lastly, God's calling teaches us to abide with God. Look at verse 24, which says, So brothers, in whatever condition each was called there, let him remain with God. We can remain in our situations because we remain or we abide with God. He's our satisfaction. So what does this mean? Well, the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon says, this would mean to be near to God, to be perpetually mindful of his presence and favor. In other words, in communion with God, this would secure their contentment and happiness. They would find his favor to be life and his loving kindness to be better than life. 
there was a monk whose name was Brother Lawrence, and he wrote a book, maybe you heard of it, called Practicing the Presence of God. He was a man who lived a life of very menial tasks, and he started this spiritual exercise where when he was doing all these mundane menial tasks, he would try to bring to remembrance that he was doing this in the presence of God. So this is things like you unloading and loading your dishwasher or your laundry machine, or wiping the 37,000 snotty nose from your kid, or, or, you know, all these mundane things, grocery shopping, all these things that tend to kind of stress us out. He was bringing his mind to remembrance that I am doing all these things in the presence of God. Because God is not just the God of the spectacular. God is the God of the mundane, amen? And he can transform your mundane life in rituals to be something powerful. So he was doing this. He was trying to accomplish never-ending prayer, prayer that never ceased. And he found it to be exhausting. He found it to be extraordinarily difficult. And he found it to be almost impossible. But yet before he gave up, he realized... I have never had more joy in my life. This is the greatest joy I've ever had. No matter how painful my life gets, no matter how difficult my circumstances are, no matter how mundane or bored I become, what a joy it is to abide in the presence, to remain in the presence of God. How does that change how we look at our lives? God's joy gives us perseverance in the midst of our sorrow. God's peace gives us comfort in the midst of tears. God's life gives us courage to walk through the valleys, the valley of the shadow of death. God's presence enables us to abide wherever we are in whatever assignment we find ourselves or life circumstance that presents itself. Christianity is not a revolutionary religion of upward social mobility. No, Christianity is a message that there is a calling of God that transforms whatever you are doing so that you can remain there and be his witness. Whatever you're doing, wherever you are, the opportunity may arise. God might open a door and you're free to take that. That's what Paul's saying. But God transforms, his call transforms and transcends all of your circumstances that you find yourself in. So you're here now. Remain. If he leads you somewhere else, Guess what? You're there now. Remain. Bloom. Be used by God. But why does this matter? Let's apply this to our lives to make this a little practical. First, we respond. We apply this by responding to God's effectual call through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul is talking about this calling that is reaching us. This calling that is about what Jesus has done. This calling to believe what Jesus has done for me, for you. Let me read you the Westminster Catechism, question 67, as it talks about the, uh, the effectual call of God. It says, Effectual calling is the work of God's almighty power and grace, whereby out of his free and special love to his elect, and from nothing in them moving him thereunto, he doth in his accepted time invite and draw them to Jesus Christ, by his word and his spirit, savingly enlightening their minds, renewing and powerfully determining their wills, so as as they, although in themselves dead in sin, are hereby made willing and able freely to answer his call and to accept and embrace the grace offered and conveyed therein. That's the Westminster Catechism, question 67. And what this is saying is understand this glorious gospel of salvation in Christ. 
that God looked upon us when we were dead, when we were unfaithful, when we were at the bottom of the sea, can't even breathe for ourselves, and he pulled us up dead of our sins, out of the miry clay. He expelled the water and breathed life into us. We were non-responsive, and God gave us life, and he has empowered us graciously, and he calls us out of ourselves to open our eyes to Jesus, that Jesus no longer is our enemy, but that he is beautiful, that he is radiant, that he is glorious, and that he is good. And we can't help but repent from our sins and turn to him in faith and accept and embrace the grace offered and conveyed in the call of Christ. So the question this morning is, do you hear God's effectual call? Are you sensing Jesus Christ drawing you to himself in his spirit? If so, the application is clear. Respond. Repent from your sins. Ask God to forgive you for what you have done in rebellion against him and to give you faith. To believe that because Jesus Christ our Lord, very God of very God, became human for you, and he died the death that you should have died, and he lived the righteous life you should have lived, and he rose again so that you could be redeemed. And God is saying, regardless of your circumstance, you don't need to change your social status. You don't need to dress up or act up any different. Just respond right now in repentance and faith and begin to bloom and watch what God does. And before you can move on to anything, you have to respond to faith in Christ. And if you are here and you're saved, what is God calling to do? Is it to remain? Is it to move on? Maybe you know what God has been calling you to do and you've been ignoring. You've been putting it off maybe for months, years, whatever. Repent. Repent. And ask God to give you the strength to be obedient to what he is calling you to do. The second application is this. Don't be anxious about the assignments in your life. That's ah, a very easy statement, okay? Just don't be anxious. So uh, we're anxious about so many things. But our Heavenly Father knows that we need all these things. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. And he was talking about things like clothing and being anxious about food. But we often get anxious about our life situations as well. We wonder, is the grass greener over there? Is our good shepherd leading us to something better? And we start to believe this greener pasture syndrome. And I don't know, but, but we become anxious. Am I doing the right thing? Am I obeying God's calling in my life? Am I living in the will of God? Am I seeing the signs correctly? If I'm not in full-time ministry, am I really doing something for God? Am I living my best life now? Questions like that plague us. And this passage doesn't establish that your circumstances are unchangeable. There are times and situations that you will avail yourself to opportunities. But what this passage does teach us is that we can all just relax, take a breath, calm down. We don't need to get anxious about our calling on life because it's been given to us and bought for us by the blood of Jesus Christ. And by faith, he gives us the power to live that out by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's our call. So our assignments in light of that are ultimately irrelevant. We, don't have the, uh, we do have assignments from the Lord, but what is of most importance is how you are living in those assignments. The third application is we need to reject a consumer mindset where we just take, 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 take. And, I'm, and, I'm getting the, uh, and what am I getting from this relationship, from this church, from these people? And instead of embracing a servant mindset, the doctrine of effectual calling changes, this is what I'm getting at, changes what we expect out of this life. 
We don't need to be concerned about what we are getting out of this life. Am I fulfilling my goals, my dreams, or my aspirations? That does not need to be what is our primary focus. Instead, wherever we are, we can be content. And we can say, in this situation right now, how may I serve? How can I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength in this situation? How can I love my neighbor as I love myself in this situation? Because what the passage teaches us is we cannot look for satisfaction in what we're doing, but instead how we're doing what we're doing. Who are we in our circumstances? Who are we in our jobs? Are we doing all this in response of faith and obedience to the commands to love God and love others, whatever circumstance we find ourselves in? The question isn't, we need to reject these questions. It isn't, am I in the right job? Am I in the right city? Am I in the right church? Am I in the right marriage? By the way, that last one's always yes. With these other questions, since you, can't take a different, since you can take a different job, you can freely go to a different church, we have to ask the harder questions because those aren't the right questions to ask. Instead, we need to ask, how do I serve Christ and others here right now? in these relationships, in these circumstances that God has put me in? How do I bloom where Christ has planted me? If we are always trying to discern if we are getting what we need, we will never be content. It's a hamster wheel. If instead we are looking, how can I serve, there will always be opportunity. And lastly and very quickly, I know the kids are upstairs today, seek the illumination of the Holy Spirit as you evaluate the assignments and opportunities on your life. There will be times when opportunities present themselves to make something different in your circumstances. How do you know if those are good, if you should pursue them? Well, the Bible says two elements. One is the work of the Holy Spirit and the objective inspiration of the Bible. If the Bible tells you something directly and you were planning on going a different direction, you are objectively sinning. The Bible says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if you're saying you have an opportunity to go join a different religion that walks away from Jesus... The Bible says you're sinning. The Bible is an objective word. It's not the ten suggestions. It's the ten commandments, right? And it speaks objectively to situations. But there are other situations in our lives that are subjective, that are different from circumstance to circumstance and person to person. And we're going to get to this more next week. It's not that we have a different Bible. It's certainly not that the infallible and errant word of God is just open to interpretation. Oh, I hate that. Oh, that's just how you're interpreting it. No, there's one interpretation of the Bible. That's not what I'm saying. The Bible talks about how husbands should relate to wives, right? But the Bible doesn't tell Aaron how I should relate to Bailey. I have responsibilities to my wife that, that no one in heaven or on earth shares. And I have to think about the specifics of that in relation to who I am and who she is. So when I read Ephesians 5, for example, where it says, Husbands, lay down your life for your wife. Well, what does that look like to me? That's going to look different to me than it's going to look to Norman or to Jack or to Brian or to Corey or to anyone. What does that look like to me? And I have to think about who my wife is, who I am, and the conversations I have with her. What did I say to her? What didn't I say to her? What, 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 uh, what, what were my thoughts about her? What weren't my thoughts about her? Have I had these conversations? Am I showing love? I have to look at these things. So I take the objective word of God and I ask for illumination from the Holy Spirit to apply this to my specific situation. 
You have the same objective passage in front of you, but you need to look at how it's applied in your situation. It's not up to interpretation. Rather, it's just you taking the objective scripture and applying it to the specifics of your life. So if that's true, then we need to think through our opportunities and our assignments through that lens. So we often go to the Bible because we're trying to get answers, right? What school should I go to? What job should I take? Should I move to this city or that city? But we, but we won't get clear answers on that from the Bible. This is why we look, uh, we look for a word of God, right? We want someone to just tell us something and, and when we believe it, but we don't need that. Like if that happens, great, but we don't need that because you already have the word of God in your hands. And if you want to hear it audibly, well, read it out loud. <laughs> All right? You need the Holy Spirit to illuminate his word in that situation. I'm not saying that God can't move miraculously or things like that, but objectively we need God to illuminate his word in our situations. We need to ask for illuminations for this objective teaching of the eternal word of God that's been recorded for all of us in Scripture in the Old Testament and the New Testament, which is the only rule concerning God and how, what duty we owe to him. And when we read it this way, we ask, okay, I have this job opportunity in front of me. What does God have, what has God called me to in light of my family? And I know that this job is going to take me away from my family completely. I know it's going to rob me how I'm supposed to serve my kids and my wife and even my church. So what does the objective word say? I have to think, does this line up? I have to ask for the illumination and understanding of the objective teaching of scripture. Does this line up with this situation? Because there is no clear answer on that. The Bible doesn't say, yes, it will, or no, it won't. It doesn't give you a point system. It's not like one of those old teen magazines where you fill it all out. It's going to show you who your perfect mate is. It doesn't work that way. You have to look. You have to search. So how do we get that? Well, first, I know it seems basic, but, you know, half of us don't do it, so maybe we should stop calling it basic. We need to pray. We need to pray. We don't pray for answers. But we pray for illumination, for the scripture to frame how we are thinking about these questions. Second, we need to search scriptures. Again, you're not searching scripture for answers. Your job isn't to close your eyes, to drop your Bible on the table and play Bible roulette and just read whatever page it opens to. Your job is to search scriptures. Ask for God to reveal to you how does this speak to me in my general principle as you're praying for illumination. Thirdly, most, and I wouldn't say most importantly, but very important, this is why we have the church. Seek godly counsel. Again, not for an answer, but going to other believers who are further along from you in faith, who have gained hope and, and, and have gained through the Holy Spirit's illumination in their own life, in their own experience with similar questions. They have searched scriptures and they've seen various principles and how the light of God's word shone into their lives by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Listen to saged wisdom. We need it. And then fourthly, just make a decision already. Right? We want the skies to open up for us to make a decision. But after you've done all those things, you've got to commit. Make a decision. Because ultimately, your circumstances are secondary in importance to your calling. The most important things is your faith and your obedience and, your command and, and being obedient to the commands of God. Seek God. Remember that he is your number one priority because at the end of the day, in the last analysis, when God looks at your life, he's not going to go, oh, I really wish you would have did this because you would have got a bigger mansion. No, what he's going to be concerned about is your conduct, your character, who you are when nobody else is watching, 
who you are when you're not sitting in these chairs with the other Christians, who you are behind closed doors. Integrity is of importance. I want my bridges that I drive over to be integral at 2 a.m. as they are at 2 p.m. I don't want to be going over the bridge and that thing crashing on me in the night. And it's the same with your lives. Amen? Your circumstances are important, but they come secondary to how you act within your circumstances. Amen? Amen. Let's pray as the worship team comes. Father, I thank you for this wonderful, beautiful, amazing group before me, your bride, Lord. Father, I thank you for your word that you have inspired, Lord, that you have given to us and passed down through generations to illuminate into our lives. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes that see and ears that hear. Father, that you would give us a hunger for your word. Lord, that we wouldn't be casual about the things of God, but we'd be serious. Lord, that you would use us. Father, each one of these people in front of me have a specific opportunity to be a missionary in their jobs, in their homes, in their communities, O oh Lord, where they can serve in love and bloom where you have planted them. Use us, O oh God, in Jesus' name, amen.